When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of um, <laughs> Analyzing Anfield. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, I'm joined by Mo Stewart. Mo, how are you getting on, mate? Um, I've been all right. It's been um, it's been a while since we last did one of these, and yeah, quite a bit has happened both on and off the pitch. But I mean, obviously, getting ready for Christmas, getting ready for a very large game at the weekend, but in a very chipper mood, I would say, in general. Yeah, well, this is a big episode, and it's a big episode for several reasons. Um, we've got big games to review. Obviously, we're into a semi-final. We've just played Man United. Doesn't really get much bigger than that. And then this weekend. We've got what feels like a title decider, to be honest. We've got Arsenal at home. Um, I think it's first versus second, unless Aston Villa have disrupted that a little bit. Um, and on top of that, we have big news to announce. But the big news is coming at the end of the show. So I'm going to make you all stick around uh, until the very end to wear that to wear that one. But it'll be worth it. So, um, yeah, bear with us on that. But I think first we'll touch on... I suppose the past couple of days have been in system mode, and this is one of the perks of recording on a Thursday. Because mm-hmm. if we'd have recorded on Tuesday, this would have been a very different podcast. Yes, but I think do you know what I think above all else, what this offers an insight into is just how how much finishing decides narratives. It's just mad, isn't it? One thousand percent. That's that's so mad that you said that because that's exactly been my overriding thought for the last twenty four hours. And when you look into the way that the West Ham game panned out, there are moments where if that doesn't happen at that moment, the narrative does diverge completely. But I mean, it feels a little simplistic to say that goals make everything better and change games, but that's really what we're in it for. They are the deciding moments in football matches, and if you can get them then your life is easy. If you can't get them, then things get harder. And that's what we've seen over the last couple of days. Like you say, this is a very different show than it would have been on Tuesday. But I like that. I like the fact that we get a bit more time and distance to kind of look at things. Because I think there are things that appeared in both games, even though one went well and one didn't. But when you have them both together, you can take a bit more reasoned argument and reasoned look at them. Yeah, well, I think the Man United game in particular is interesting. It feels like quite a while away at the minute, but I just want to touch on it because I, I don't actually, this is going to sound a bit weird, but I don't think we played that badly, right? It was not an enjoyable watch. <laughs> totally, completely agree with that. Um, but in terms of the, the overall performance, I think specifically on the defensive side, I think we were pretty good. I think yeah. we, we sustained attacks really well, started the next wave. Um didn't really concede very much at all. 
despite the fact that they've got decent players on the break. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that w- what was lacking was just kind of the a, a the fluidity in terms of our possession game and and how we how we found the net and stuff like that. The, the, the fluidity in that sense was lacking, and obviously the finishing. But I think if you look at the numbers attached to the game, it's it, it's virtually what I would have expected going into it. Like if you'd have showed me these numbers before the game, and you'd have and you'd have said to me that's how the game's going to go, I'd have been like, that's absolutely spot on as to what I expected. But because we didn't get the goal, you know, it it it, it looks miserable, and it was. It, don't get me wrong, it was relatively miserable. Like we didn't create anything that was genuinely like fully clear cut where we thought like you know that that should be going in. But when when you generate 34 shots 34 shots is loads mate that, that's a lot of shots that um, I think 15 of them to be fair were outside the box but I think sometimes mate that one of them just creeps in and, and then it's a completely different chat it's diff- it really is difficult to analyse because like yeah. you say the same things when you're watching the game and you're seeing the shots they don't all kind of exist in a vacuum because a shot in like the 11th minute when we've had a couple of attacks and we're starting to put pressure on and it shows a good shot, it goes on target and it's close and everyone goes, woo, that's a good shot. But the, a shot where we've had static possession for 20 seconds or so, past year, left and right, Man United players haven't moved and then the ball's come to a player and he's just rolled it in front of him and splammed the shot and it's gone 20 yards back. That's a bad shot, but they could have both happened from exactly the same point in the pitch. And I think that's kind of where the difference lies. But by that exact same token, it was exactly that kind of shot which opened the game up against West Ham for Sobersai. And so you see Mm. the methods, but it was the execution. And I agree with you in terms of the Man United game. I think what we saw was one affecting the other. The more we were making sloppy mistakes or a ball was over here or someone misread a run, then those things started to creep into everyone and it's kind of exacerbated itself along with the nervous tension of the fixture itself. And it was almost like a snowball effect. The more it happened, the more it felt like it was going to happen. Whereas in this game, you have the early goal, you have the breakthrough, everyone settles down and then you allow the game, you allow yourselves to develop and start playing your football and it pays off. Yeah, I think in the Man United game, I think we we actually started the game, in my opinion, relatively strongly. I think we we put them under immediate pressure. We got a few early corners and things like that. But it does get to a point where if you still haven't scored yet, everyone starts to kind of question what to do, and then they start looking around and forcing it and taking these long shots and stuff. But even despite taking so many long shots, um, the expected goals on day obviously reasonably high considering Liverpool took 34 shots but the the XG was about Liverpool 2.8 and Man United 0.9 mm-hmm. so despite Liverpool not really creating anything clear cut and looking really disjointed at times and things like that what the XG is suggesting there is that like even despite that based on the shots that we had one of them or even two of them still just tend to creep in and, and if they don't it's just kind of one of them um, yeah. And if you look at recent games we've had, P- Crystal Palace, for example, that was the same sort of game, but we end up getting the winner. So no one really focuses yeah. on it. And there was a game before that as well. I can't remember who it was against, where you know we, we didn't really look particularly great in the attack again. 
but we get the goal. That XG, by the way, is is stats bomb XG. So that's kind of as good as you're getting, really. And they still think we should have got about two goals out of it, the Man United game. So it's and a difficult one to analyze, as you say. That's that's a confusing thing because, like you say, the processes, the numbers say that the processes are still happening. But you look at the players on the pitch, and it's hard not to feel like there has been some kind of a loss of confidence in not only the individuals, particularly in the forwards, but in terms of what knowing what they are supposed to be doing and what they are the, the teammates are doing. There's been a lot more, like I said, misread passes, misread runs than has happened previously. And it feels like they're collectively in a bit of a funk. But as you say, you look at the numbers, they are still producing the same amount of chances. So maybe that funk is the difference between creating the chances and actually putting them in. But then you think of something as fleeting and as hard to um, quantify as confidence and how important that is, particularly when you're thinking about forward players. And it's hard to kind of see a hard and fast solution. So it's interesting to me the way that Jürgen decided to try and solve that for the West Ham game, namely the position change for not only Nunes, but for Luis Diaz as well when he came on. Yeah, well, you've set me up there, mate. That was, uh, you've, you've provided the assist. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I, I think... do, man. Because so I, <laughs> I think I think that's one of the key talking points for today, to be honest. Because um, I think Liverpool's attack against United and in the past couple of weeks, specifically in the final third, I don't overly think it's it's worked. I think we've struggled to actually generate really clear cut good openings, and we've we've crawled over the line in some of the games we've won. The United game, we couldn't get that goal, and I do think there's been something in. This this narrative that Liverpool's attack, despite obviously being very good, is it's not as kind of harmonious as it was. And I think one of the reasons for that is because if you just look back at what we had initially, I've always said Firmino in the middle and Salah and Mane out wide, they they would work as a trio if they were complete strangers. If you put them on the pitch, the two lads from out wide would run, would run in behind, use the pace and use the preferred foot to cut inside and score. And Firmino would naturally retreat into midfield because that's just what he does. So with no instructions at all, that just worked as a dynamic. Liverpool at the minute, it's a bit different in the sense that you've, you've just got loads of really talented forwards and they're just kind of almost doing things on the fly a little bit. Mm. I don't think it's... I don't necessarily think it's it's completely gelling uh, in terms of like, say, for example, Salah coming out wide. I think he wants to be inside a bit more. I think all our forwards want to be inside a bit more, to yeah. be honest. We haven't really got width without Robertson. And obviously, going into the West Ham game, Klopp adopts the OG 4-3-3, where nobody inverts, really. We play a false nine, and because we're playing a false nine, it makes sense for Nunes to be the wide man. And to be fair, you can't deny it looked really, really good. Yeah. And it's weird because I think, I don't know whether it's just my mental um, approach to it or maybe the feeling of him being the number nine. I feel every time he goes out or Klopp puts him out on the left, it's almost a bit like he's sending him back to finishing school. So it's like, you're not quite there yet. So we need you over here. Yeah, but yeah. it does also tend to reignite him because... We saw so many of the great things about Nunez's game last night that don't come with the goals. The amount of times that he was able to win the ball cleanly while tackling back, but also occupying defenders in different areas of the pitch and had the quality 
to receive the ball from Jones and then lay it off uh, again for him for his first goal, which, to be honest, was my favourite goal of the night by far, simply because of what it represented. It was a goal that was created when we had a set defence in front of us. If you look at all the other goals we scored last night, the first one and a couple, I think the fourth one came from winning the ball back transitions. A couple of them came from West Ham just basically setting off. That second goal that we scored, the one Jones scored, that was them in position, disciplined at the time when they were still in the game and we were able to thread the ball through with creativity and find another runner. Two very good passes and then a very good shot. So that was my favourite moment because that is what we're going to need to face. That is what we're going to need to overcome if we're going to win more of these games. Yeah, it was definitely an interesting change. I think... One thing I do want to be clear on though is is Nunes played on the on the flanks because of the system change, not because Klopp just wanted to play him out wide. Nunes played on the flanks because we played a false nine and a traditional fullback. If on the weekend Trent does the inverting thing again and we use that system, Nunes is a nine for me. Nunes is not a wide player in that system, in my opinion, because he f- for the start he's not. He can't he can't beat a man on a dribble. And to be fair, not many of our forwards can at the minute. But <laughs> I think he's more of a tip of the spear in that system. That system's different. If we've got if we're gonna use the 43 moving forward, which would be interesting. Nunes in that system obviously is more of a Mane and a seller than he is a Firmino. So it completely depends on what we're doing. And one of the interesting things ahead of the weekend is obviously Trent has to come back into the team. And if Trent comes back into the team, I suppose the big question now is just where is it? Because he could play as a right-back, traditionally, like he has done the past couple of years. I get the vibe he wants to be a midfielder now. I think he'd be disappointed mm-hmm. with that switch. I think it was interesting that when he came on, he played as a lone six. Yeah. I think that's a possibility going into the weekend. I wouldn't be surprised to see that. Uh, but that's the big question for me at the minute. Yeah, and I think the other thing with playing him with the lone six, it solves one of the little problems that's developed elsewhere. Because I think if we look at Zobazlai and his influence and how it's changed, particularly over the last, I'd say, month or so, I do think it is a consequence of Trent coming into the areas that he kind of wants to live in. So earlier on in the season, if you think about it, when Trent was inverted, he was still staying deeper he was still staying either in the center back position or a little bit ahead of the center circle so there was still room ahead of him for midfielders to create and to make triangles with Salah and Nunes whereas now was Trent starting in midfield and advancing further forward you think of that half space just before the penalty area on the right hand side the amount of times where that's where earlier in the season that was where Zobazai was doing his magic at the moment, that's where Trent's receiving the ball. So Zobazai is either standing five yards next to him and getting a square pass, or he's making a dummy run to create space for Trent. If you look at the difference between his shot-creating actions and his touches in the games between when he's playing with Gomez and when he's playing with Trent, it's remarkably different. So I think finding a fix that allows both of them to coexist in the midfield is imperative. And I think, as you say, it might be having Trent as the lone six, still doing his thing, but doing it from that slightly deeper area. Yeah, he's a, he's a player who I, I think moving forward for the rest of the season, I think he'll play in both spots. And I think we'll use um, 
the inverted fullback system and the OG 4-3-3, kind of like depending on the opponents and depending on the match state at the time and things like that. I think we got all tail between them. But in terms of, you know, predicting what's what's coming, say for example against Arsenal, it is difficult just because of how well we played. And um, you know, the original inverted fullback thing was 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 introduced to solve basically a mid a midfield department that couldn't really run. Uh, and and we didn't really have the bodies in the midfield anymore. Um it solved that. You could argue now we've got new midfielders who can run. There's less of a need for that. And it gets Gapo in the team as a false nine. Gapo then creates that four in the middle of the park that Trent has been creating by being an inverted fullback. So it is interesting, it's one to keep an eye on. We've definitely got options, we've got versatile players and things like that, but I'm not. I'm honestly not sure what he does moving forward with that. Yeah, I think it might be one of those situations, like as as you said previously, that we have. So we see both of them against Arsenal, and it's just which one we see at the start and which one we see at the end, and as the game state demands. Because I think it's fascinating as well that the very first time this happened was at home against Arsenal last season. So <clears throat> they would have probably had longer than anybody to think about how to deal with it, even though it has obviously slightly evolved since that point so Arteta will have a game plan for it and then as you say maybe that dictates how it evolves during the game state how we deal with whatever he he provides yeah so in, in terms of honorable mentions then on the back of the West Ham game in particular I know you want to talk about Gerald Kwanzaa yes. uh, and rightly so to be fair because he's he, he's impressing every time he's on the pitch and I think every time he's involved He's opening up a slightly new layer attached yeah. to his game, as if to say, like, look what else we've got, look what else we've got. Because I, one of the things I picked up on was his his, his line breaking passes throughout the game, and the pace he puts on them, the um, the, the demand he puts on the receiver to control it and turn. He, he almost decides what the receiver is going to do by putting so much pace on the pass. But I didn't really know he had that to his game. To be fair. No, I didn't either. And it's exciting that he felt confident and comfortable enough to show it. And I think, it, like you say, it is another layer in his development and it's an important layer for a couple of reasons for me. One, this is his second consecutive start alongside Virgil van Dijk. And yes, he didn't play the whole game against Crystal Palace, but in this game, he was more, he was the dominant defender. He was doing more of the defending. He had more touches. He was playing more passes. I think he won 75% of his aerial duels. There was moments where Virgil was just kind of coasting alongside him. He's like, you got it? Yeah, yeah, sound. And <laughs> and that, again, I think is a really important point. And because what, all the other times when he was playing, he was doing the job that Virgil would normally do in the team. So he was substituting for Virgil, which, again kind of on the low key it's a big deal for the young guy coming into the team say oh yeah we get you to do all the things our best defender does that's fine <laughs> and he's taken to them so then you think okay well if we get to the end of the season and he hasn't suffered any kind of a serious dip or any kind of injury you feel confident saying that he can be the guy who plays when we don't have Virgil around so then what that means for the rest of the defence and other prospective defenders you're looking in. Because obviously we've been thinking about Gonzalo Inacio. He's the one we've been most linked with. He's a left-footed centre-half. And we've been talking a lot about we need a left-footed centre-half. Jarrell Quantz is right-footed. 
but he's mm. doing the Virgil van Dijk stuff just like Virgil. So does that mean you still go for a left foot and then you play him on the right side? On it, it just basically opens up a whole range of possibilities. Yeah, I, I think Kwanzaa for me is is a successor from Matup. I, I think Matup probably leaves at the end of the season. And given Kwanzaa's development, the fact he's right-footed, how he looks when he plays, I think he's quite obviously a tailor-made replacement for him, just one in, one out immediately like that. And I think next season he can play a few more minutes. I don't think he's looked anywhere near out of his depth when he's been involved, so I'm completely in favour of Liverpool not buying a massive replacement and, and keeping Kwanzaa and just promoting him, essentially. But on the left side... As you say, he's not left-footed, so I I would still be interested in buying a centre-back, but I don't think he has to be a massive replacement. I think he has to be a Virgil, maybe like an, an, an heir to Virgil's left-sided throne. I think Van Dijk can keep playing there, obviously, for the next couple of years, but when he moves on, I think it'd be nice to have a left-footer who's re- who's primed to just step in when he leaves or when he, you know, that sort of thing. That's true. And the problem with that, well, not the problem, the issue in general, is that that's really hard to find. And it's going to take a while. And we're not necessarily going to know exactly when Virgil's going to be ready to go. So the idea that we can get the perfect guy at the perfect time is still small. So having a guy like Kwanzaa, who in the interim can still do the Virgil thing, but like you say, does have very much Matip-like sensibilities, will be priceless. Because it means that we can wait for the right Virgil the same way we waited for the first Virgil. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how we do things. But I do think Kwanzaa has, has shown already that he's very much ready to be to play more of a prominent part in, in the team, maybe, and almost follow a similar trajectory, hopefully, to, to someone like a Levi Cowell, who is... Mm-hmm. You know, relatively similar. Not even, not even as physical. To be fair, Cobble's a bit more unique in the sense that he's left-footed. Um, that's one thing he's definitely got on his side. But both of them, you know, young English. I can see both of them starting as a pair. To be honest, in 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 a few years' time, like a major tournament for England or something like that. Yeah. Um, before we move on from the West Ham game and preview the big the big title game, I also think, um. The, the midfield, just in general, I thought played really well. I thought Sobosley was back on it, and that, that was good to see. I thought Endo was spot on, and he's definitely growing in prominence as like this a, a bit of a long six for Liverpool, certainly on on, on the midweek game. Uh, Curtis Jones, who we haven't really seen much of lately, obviously shined, scored two goals. And even though he played a bit further forward, I, I thought Harvey ah, yeah, was brilliant throughout the game. Um, so, yeah, some really good performances in there in the midfield. Yeah, and looking good as a unit, looking balanced as a unit, I think was really important. Because as you say, we didn't do as much of the inverting. So it was reliant on those three and occasionally earlier when he dropped in, or Gakpo when he was dropping in, to provide that extra balance. But I think they all did really well. They all looked like they were helping each other play. And I mentioned the difference between Zobazai playing with Trent in that space and without him. I think with him... The, the numbers of him playing alongside Curtis Jones and without him are also very different and very telling. I think they two really dovetail well together. So I wouldn't be surprised, even if Graham Burke is fit, if those three are the ones against Arsenal. However, a word of caution, <laughs> I do expect Arsenal to be considerably better than either Manchester United or West Ham were. We have to mention the fact that 
if I was a West Ham fan and I have some friends and I can confirm this was their feeling, I would have been like, what was the point of that? Honestly, yeah. what was the point of them coming up there? Apart from Jared Bowen reminding Klopp that he is very much a great player and can play for Liverpool. I mean, they made it very easy for Liverpool at times. You can say the fact that the second goal came just on the back of their best period in the game and just before they were making the change to bring on Lucas Pakatar was pivotal, but at the same time. Like, Jones' second goal looks great, but if I'm a West Ham fan, I am absolutely spitting feathers. Like, they had a, a, um, a preview with Joe Gomez, only nearly ran through and scored, and Curtis Jones clearly saw that and thought, well, I'll show you how it's done. And they couldn't stop him, they didn't stop him. So yeah. I expect Arsenal to be a much tougher test, but I would still probably go with that midfield three. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought West Ham were absolutely awful. <laughs> it, I, a bit surprising, to be honest. I didn't expect it. I, I think no. they do generally quite well in cups. And uh, when I saw the starting lineup, I didn't pick it apart completely, but I looked at some of the forwards on the pitch and, you know, Ben Rama, Kudos, Bowen, you know, they had good players on the field and Suchek was there. So, yeah, I thought it would be a stickier game than it was, but they were just wide open. And Liverpool were just breaking lines for fun. Um, the middle of the park was just... It was like they had a man sent off, but they were still trying to play um, front foot football. And, and Liverpool just cut them open every five minutes. So, really weird performance. I think Moyes, after the game, was uh, was putting it down to Liverpool being great. But I felt like saying, mate, <laughs> Liverpool were good, but... I think you've helped us there, like, to be honest. Uh, I, th- I think he might be saying something slightly different today in training. Yeah, yeah. Probably saying something different to his wife when he gets wrong, to be honest. But I think in this game of the media, he's after that new contact and he's contacts up at the end of the season. So I think if he just throws his players under the bus, he knows he's getting off. Um, but as you say, Arsenal are probably going to be a bit better. Uh, and I have spent some of this week looking at Arsenal. I did so for a preview for the game for Redmond TV, which is going out on Friday. And they're good, mate. Yeah. <laughs> I can confirm they are good. Yeah. Especially in defence. Really impressed by their defensive game. And I'll go through the numbers in a minute. But um just really watertight. And and that's that's what their title credentials are founded on, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one hundred percent. And I think you look at, particularly when they play at home, the thing that they've been able to maintain is that because they have such security, they're able to keep teams penned in and maintain attacks over longer periods. So that allows them to play their football, to develop their patterns of play and then get themselves into space and get overloads out wide. Because if you think about it, you can kind of picture the archetypal Arsenal goal. It will be start with, uh, a, a couple of quick passes in the midfield, spread it out to the wide player, maybe an overlapping run or an underlapping run, and then a cut back to the penalty spot and someone advancing in there. They score that goal a lot. And those are the kind of goals that tells you your processes are working well. And that all stems, as you say, from their defensive solidity, their ability to stop teams getting out against them. And that's going to be something you have to overcome, particularly when we said our attack's not necessarily been at its sharpest. I think the the flip side that I think gives us benefit is that this is going to be an Arsenal team that's going to come to Anfield with the aim of attacking. Yes, they might not necessarily come 
flying out of the traps, but they are definitely coming to plan to score and to carry a goal threat at all times. And that maybe gives us the chance to maybe have a little bit more space when we do attack. Well, generally, the these games have been relatively free scoring uh, against Arsenal on field. Generally, lots of goals in it. But just after looking at Arsenal's defence this week, I, I'm I wouldn't I wouldn't bet against the nil nil. I mean, some of the numbers just fill a bit of perspective on that. Like every every single season that Pep Guardiola manages, Pep Guardiola, Pep Guardiola's teams face the fewest shots. Just always, even when Liverpool won the league, City we just City don't face many shots because they just dominate the ball and it's just the way they play. But when the shots do come, to be fair, they're quite clear cuts, so they tend to get scored and, and things like that. So City are still facing the fewest shots, uh, 7.9 on average they're facing this season. But Arsenal are right there on 8.1. Arsenal are only facing 8.1 shots. That's very, very close to Manchester City, very close to a Guardiola team. Liverpool are up on 11.7 shots mm. per 90 faced. To be fair, we've had a few red cards, so it's probably a bit less than that. Um, but that's but, probably still a marked improvement from us last season. <laughs> yeah, definitely, yeah. Um, but I think what's more impressive is when you look at the expect goals. So in terms of XG against Arsenal, are the best in the league, and it's comfortable as well. Like they, they give away about 0.7 xg per match, which is nothing really. Manchester City give away 0.9. Liverpool give away 1.2. Um, so in addition to Arsenal not really conceding much in terms of quantity of shots, when the quality of the shots comes as well, it's it, they're not they're not easy to score. The average yeah. shot that Arsenal face is scored about nine percent of the time. And that's that's the joint best in the league. Um, for a bit of perspective on that, City the average shot that City face is scored twelve percent of the time, and City are the third worst for that. And that's just because when those shots come, they usually counter attacks quite clear cut. So Arsenal have got the perfect balance of yeah. not facing much, and when they do face it, they're still difficult to score. So yeah. it's a really good defence, mate. It is. And the beauty of it is that normally, or a lot of time when you think about a really good defensive team, it will be a team who commits lots of numbers to that defensive structure. But they don't really. I mean, if mm. you think of the midfield three, Odegaard, Havertz and Rice, um, Rice is really the only defensive midfielder of that. And even he has the ability to be progressive and to arrive at the edge of the box. And then you've got uh, Ben White and Zinchenko. Zinchenko obviously will drift into midfield. Ben White is no afraid of getting up into the attack. So it's not so much the fact that they've got loads of defenders in there clogging the space. They're just kind of shutting down the space by allowing um, the centre-backs to come press up high, absolutely compress the space. You've got Gabriel Jesus kind of coming into midfield. And then... Saka, Martinelli, Odegaard, Havertz, they are intense in their pressing. So it's just a hive of activity that no one can really get through. That is how they defend their goal. And the beauty of that is that not only does that defend your goal, but it also gives you a platform for attacking as well. Well, this is it. Like, if you look at Arsenal's defensive game again, like, one of the reasons they they face so few shots is because they, they generally prove to be really difficult to progress through. And again, that's that's captured by the numbers. So 
so far this season per match, they concede about 22 progressive passes. Again, that's the best in the league. Manchester City, 22.8. Liverpool are uh, about 6th or 7th for that, conceding about 33 per match. Um, and, I get, and it's the same when it comes to conceding passes into your penalty box. Arsenal concede about 3.9 passes into their penalty box per match. Then City on 4.5, which is quite a bit more. And then Liverpool on 6.4. So it's it, it basically if Liverpool managed to get into Arsenal's box, get off your seat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because, because they've done well to do it, mate. Yeah. Mute. Yeah. Well, and then have done well to do it. And maybe that's kind of part of what we've seen from all these shots from outside the box. Maybe we're maybe we're kind of aware that, that it's gonna be difficult and we're gonna have to kind of sharpen them up. But yeah, that that kind of element of them being able to squeeze everybody out. Like imagine you're a team going to play Arsenal and you're thinking literally we're gonna get four chances to put the ball in the box in the whole game. Absolutely got to make them count. And not everybody's got the quality to make them count. So I think for Liverpool, the plan has got to be either those shots from outside the box or to uh, concentrate on transitions, try to draw Arsenal out and then use that space in behind. But the sh- we, we mentioned the shots before. I do think they are an important part of the game plan. And as much as some people can say that sometimes that having a lot of long shots from outside the box is proof that you don't really have a plan. If you look at the goals scored from outside the box this season, uh, they had it up during the League Cup game on the sky. Uh, the top four teams are the top four teams in the league. So, yeah. I mean, obviously it's working for someone. Exactly, yeah, there's your evidence. Um, but yeah, I think, I think Arsenal looking like a top side, as I said, looking like defensively really solid. But I think if you want kind of like a the silver lining, if you want, if, if you look at Arsenal's defence, they they have a much weaker goalkeeper than a lot of top sides, to be honest. Uh, I I do actually rate David Raya, but I don't this season. I think he looks mm. nervous. He, he looks unsure of himself. And I, I watched him against Luton. He got bullied from set pieces and looked like a, you know, looked a bit lost at times, to be honest. And, um. Those long shots that you've just mentioned, I think if the crowd can get up and Liverpool can hit some of them long shots on target, you don't know if he's going to like, you know, if some of them are going to bobble up off him or something like yeah. that, or he's going to drop one or something. Um, so that that's, despite Arsenal's defence being really good, they have conceded 15 times. Liverpool have conceded 15 times. And the reason that the, the level in that sense is, is the goalkeepers. I think David Ray has conceded something like three... 0.7 goals more than expected and Allison has saved 3.3 goals more than expected so yeah. um he's overperforming Raya's underperforming and that's brought Liverpool level with Arsenal I suppose when it comes to conceding so I think if you want to target someone I think you can try and target the goalkeeper definitely yeah 100% and I think when you're thinking about um starting positions and who starts and who doesn't again having that kind of goalkeeper in that kind of form and you think about Darwin Nunes who in between the difference between Man United and West Ham he was definitely back to his shot gobbling best against West Ham 
uh, you, he definitely that definitely comes into play because I do think that's been a part of our long shot tactic, not just the ability of having players to score from there, but knockdowns. I think of goals Gravenberg scored where he's arrived late and tapped in after a goalkeeper spilled it. That is that is a tactic. I mean, second it's a second ball, and you know yeah. how much Klopp loves second balls. So I do think that it's something we might well see, whether or not it's something that happens. Uh, from earlier on or is something we see at some point in the game because as you say Raya he does look like throughout any given 90 minutes there will be one moment where he gives you a chance yeah it's going to be interesting to see Liverpool's attack hopefully it's firing against this Arsenal defence and, and, and how that kind of plays out because I think a lot of the game will be decided by that and even like what we touched on earlier with the inverted fullback stuff Trent potentially being deployed as a six this weekend you know, that would coincide well with, with Martinelli always causing Trent problems. I think if you was to play Gomez as your right back, maybe you get rid of that a little bit. Mm. Um but there's there's lots of lots of interesting things to follow. I think Martin Odegaard is another one that we have to take care of. I think he's a he's a really big player for them. He's kind of like their struggle try a little bit. Yeah. In terms of when they're building from the back, he, he will drop in and help a lot. But he also, you know, dictates a lot what goes on in the final third, takes a fair few shots for the midfielder as well. So He's developed. I think he's the captain as well, isn't he? So yeah, he's developed into a, a really big presence for him. Um, he, he's going to have to be watched. One hundred percent. And I think his he kind of had a little bit of a drop off earlier in the season, but since the last, I'd say, six weeks or so, him and Declan Rice have really started to kind of perfect their partnership because it's all about who decides to become the advanced midfielder and who decides to sit back because they both have the ability, as I said previously, to do it. And now they look like they've got that kind of rhythm going and it's kind of unlocked him again as a presence. So how we decide to focus on him will be fascinating because obviously he's going to be in that left side of the pitch where we're expecting to see probably Curtis Jones. So that will be a, a very key battle over the course of the game. So with this being a big one, we are going to do predictions. So what are you saying, Mo? Well, I think <laughs> for Arsenal, they've been getting closer and closer to getting a result at Anfield and they will feel like there's no better time. Unfortunately, I just think that that result will probably be a point. I think it's going to be, like you say, there will be goals. It will be tight, but there will be goals. So I'm going to say a 1-1 draw. I am also going to say one one, yeah. Uh, I think if we if we get a result, I think a lot of it will be decided by the atmosphere and, and Anfield, and that feels very on brand at the minute as a talking point, to be honest. And I think that's why Klopp came out and said what he said um, on the back of the West Ham game. I don't think Klopp does that if Liverpool are facing Wolves on the weekend. He's done it because we're facing Arsenal and because he rates Arsenal, and he knows if we're going to get a win, it's probably going to involve that kind of edge that you can get from having a fan base behind you, basically. So, Well, well he referenced the argument Arteta had with the referee. Yeah. So yeah. that tells you that he's very specifically thinking about this game and what it can mean. Yeah, yeah. It's in system one, but it should be a good game. It should be a really tactical one. But, yeah, make no mistake, this team's good. And I actually think, after looking at them this week, I actually think, I think if you finish above Arsenal... You probably win the league this season. They, they, they do look really good. So uh, this is going to be an interesting test of Liverpool. But before we round up, Mark, we have news, don't we? 
<laughs> yes, we do. Yes, we do. So um, this is the last ever episode of Analyze Nanfield. Um, it's an emotional one. <laughs> it's a deep one because I've been recording this every week for going on five years now. It's really helped me as well in terms of uh, just after Liverpool games, just airing my thoughts, you know, just kind of getting them off my chest and seeing where I seeing where I am in terms of my thoughts on the team and that. And obviously we did it through Liverpool's first Premier League win, title win, um, which was amazing. Uh, there's been lots of people throughout who I want to thank. Christian Walsh was the first, um, was the man behind the start of it, to be honest. It was his idea because Diego didn't really have uh, a podcast like this. He wanted me to be to be behind it. So Chris started it with me. And then anyone who knows him will know he's an extremely busy guy. <laughs> yes. uh, so he started to gradually hand the reins over to me as the host. And when he did it, I was initially... Um, every week I was kind of saying, Chris will be back next week. Chris will be back next week. Because I was like, I was uncomfortable with hosting. I'd never done it before. Uh, but over time, I realised he weren't coming back. <laughs> um, so I started hosting and then we had uh, uh, David Hughes, Guy Clark, Matt Addison, Sam, Pat, Ed, Mark, um, Andrew Beasley, Dan Bees, yeah, and then obviously yourself Mo, you know, you've been a, a really good addition to this show and I think we've, we've added a new dynamic obviously over the, couple of, the last couple of months, I'm not sure how long you've been doing it with us now but it's been a pleasure doing it with you as well. Honestly, time is very hard to construct, but I feel like it's been with a little break in the summer, pretty much a year. And mm. it's been so much fun for me as well to be able to have a show like this. Like you say, it's a little bit different to most things that are out there. And yeah, you get to flex your analytical muscle a little bit, but also <laughs> take a little bit of time to come up with something, a little bit of distance from the action to really kind of, Look at what's going on. And yeah, I've loved every minute of it. I'm sad to be the man standing on the ship as it goes down. Hope I'm not going to get wet. But um, <laughs> <laughs> very glad to have made a, my part of this history. I've been made redundant alongside about 450 uh, colleagues. Um, company, just one of them things, really. It's not, not, not much I can do about it. But I, th I like to think we've established quite a good brand over the past couple of years, you know, from from... Q&A specials to scouting picks to transfer episodes to, I mean, there was a point where we did, uh, we were recording during lockdown with the worst haircuts ever, mate. I mean, and it was like a, rec <laughs> was like a recurring theme, like I had like a buzz cut and it just didn't suit me at all. Like, oh, we need, we need a compilation video. Definitely. <laughs> we, need, we need some kind of like farewell, some proper send off. Do you know what? I was, uh, I was looking a couple of days ago at like videos from three years ago because I was going to post it as like a thing and I, I actually can't because I looked that bad on them, mate. And my <laughs> fringe is that, it's just awful. Like, why didn't no one pull me and say like, mate, you need a well, new cut, you know? <laughs> I mean, to be honest, most of them are probably still out there. So those of you listening who are now curious <laughs> about what that looked like, you could probably find them. Yeah, please don't go and look. But um. Yeah, it's been a pleasure anyway. I mean, there's there's people who've who've sent regular questions in. I, I recognise all of your names. Um, I check the comments every week. You know, with, uh, any positive feedback I've seen it. Hopefully, this this video will get some nice feedback as well. Mm -hmm. Um, but before we go, I do want to say that like I I don't know what's next at the minute, but if I do something 
I shouldn't really say this, but if, if I do something, I want you all to come with me. Yeah. Um, I have an opportunity now, I suppose, to create something for myself, but I will need support if I do that. You know, if, if you've listened to this podcast, you know, on your way to school, uh, doing your round as a postman, maybe you're doing nights and you need a bit of company, maybe you're on a walk in a park or in the gym, whatever it is, I love hearing about them stories and I've loved hearing about them over the years, so... Yeah, it sounds like I'm accepting a bit, a bit of an award, doesn't it? It sounds like I'm... Uh... Well, you should be. You bloody should be. <laughs> Watch this space. And um, if you want to keep track of whatever comes next, please do go, give us a follow. I am at Distance Covered on every platform. And I'm using Instagram a bit more lately as well. So give us a follow on that. Mo, do you want to plug plug your handle as well? Yes, I am the Mighty Mojo down there on Twitter slash X. Um, I'm Mo underscore underscore Stuart on Instagram. I've also got another podcast uh, about DJing called The View from the Booth. For those of you who are interested in the music side of my world, which is literally 50% of my life. Um, and yeah, I'm also on the Anfield Rap as well, as I mentioned. So you'll see me all over. Come find me. Yeah, so one last time, Mo. Thanks for joining us, mate. As always, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for tuning in, and we will not see you next week, but I will see you sometime soon.